0: In our efforts to comprehend the systematic dispossession of Indigenous peoples in settler colonies, such as the United States, Canada, or Australia, the notion that invasion is a structure, not merely an event, first articulated by Patrick Wolfe, has become something of a maxim for critical theorists. Part of this structure, as Patrick Wolfe described it, was a logic of elimination. After all, the settler must eliminate the native in order to secure her claim to the native's territory. But whom does the settler-native binary exclude? And what do we fail to understand about how settler colonialism functions as a result? Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nancy, one of your hosts, and I have the great privilege today of addressing these questions with Iko Day, who is Associate Professor of English and Critical Social Thought at Mount Holyoke College as well as a faculty member in the five-college Asian Pacific American Studies program. Hi, Iko. Hi, Nancy. It's nice to talk to you. It's great to have you here. So we're here today to talk about Iko's new book, Alien Capital, Asian Racialization, and the Logic of Settler Colonial Capitalism, which was published in 2016 by Duke University Press. In Alien Capital, Iko does no less than re-theorize the logic of settler colonialism. Suggesting that, in fact, our starting point for understanding its structure should not be a settler-native binary, but rather a dynamic triangulation between settler, native, and alien populations. Um, but before we get into the nitty-gritty of ICO's dazzling book, I'd just like to ask you: What led you to this project? So
1: I think that, like many projects, you know, mine came out of just you know my own um, experience. Uh, I'm from Canada, and I moved to the United States for graduate school and originally I was going to develop a project that was kind of looking at Asian Canadian literature and poetry and just generally cultural production but as I was sort of trying to make sense of my own, you know positionality in the United States. Um, I got really interested in just trying to really understand Asian rela- racialization um, beyond the comparative touchstones of anti-Black racism in the U.S. Um, and that's that that modality is kind of that's the sort of theory where, you know, the racial content uh, or the racial ontology of Asian Americans is kind of sort of understood to exist between Black and white, um, where the racializations could be kind of seen as like a byproduct or or something that's related to a foundational anti Blackness. And so, as someone from Canada and British Columbia in particular, I had a hard time sort of seeing myself within that kind of approach to Asian racialization. And part of that was, again, like anecdotal. You know, when I was younger and growing up, I was really um, shaped by the struggles of First Nations peoples in British Columbia, especially like the blockade movement, um, just as I am now. Very profoundly shaped by anti-black violence in, in the U.S. So, so you know, by kind of reflecting on the dis- this distinction, I'm really not trying to minimize or deny the violence of anti-black racism in Canada. I just kind of, but that sort of awareness of this sort of distinction kind of just pushed me to sort of think about how the interplay of race and indigeneity, you know, deserve more exploration, um, particularly because they kind of unfold in slightly different ways in Canada and the U.S. So. Um, so then from there, I kind of looked at, like, so if Canada and the U.S. kind of, they have um, different sort of racial formations, um, the absence of, you know, plantation slavery in Canada is one of the distinctions, um, the, the sort of uh, heightened kind of political significance of First Nations struggles um, is also another uh, way in which I would distinguish um, that you know, um, settler colonialism in Canada and the United States. But one of the things that was eerily similar in both places was <laughs> anti-Asian policy. So if you look at the history of anti-Asian uh, immigration policy from the 19th century, it really unfolds in virtual lockstep. So so that just led me to the question, well, if Canada and the U.S. have kind of divergent or sort of distinctive racial uh, and indigenous formations, what accounts then for the, like, the eerie parallels in um, anti-Asian immigration policy and just Asian uh, policy in general. Um, all the way. Yeah. So that was kind of the origins of the exploration. And instead of thinking about it in terms of a foundational anti-Blackness that could account for those similar similarities, I wanted to sort of think about something that something else that the U.S. and Canada shared. <laughs> and that is the sort of history of British settler colonials or white settler colonialism. And so I was interested in reframing the question of Asian racialization through land and, and settler colonialism rather than, or I mean, it's kind of in addition to anti-Blackness, but it's, these aren't sort of canceling each other out, but it was sort of to prioritize um, kind of settler colonial, a settler colonial mode of production and trying to understand uh, using that as a framework to understand anti-Blackness and um, anti-Asian racialization and a whole host of questions related to race and indigeneity.
0: That's fascinating. And it's interesting the ways in which the Canadian and American comparative um, framework that you show actually emphasizes that we need to understand Asian Asian racialization on its own terms, in addition to black racialization, right? The fact that um, the the process of black racialization in in Canada um, is is not identical to the one in America. And yet, um, as you say, there's the process of Asian racialization in the two countries is eerily similar. Um, one thing that struck me is, you know, on the one hand that you, you said that in the in the book, um, uh, that Asian racialization has been subject to this kind of analogy making um, with regard to uh, anti-blackness. Um, but then at the same time, the introduction to your book bears this title, The New Jews. Right. And it makes this uh, really striking analogy between anti-Semitic tropes on the one hand and Asian racialization on the other. Right. Um, and then at the same time, you, of course, insist that Asian racialization is actually distinct from the processes that produced anti-Semitism. So can you talk a little bit about what is what is alluring and what is actually productive about this New Jew analogy? And then what might be hidden from, from, from view with that analogy?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the New Jews analogy, which is something that's probably a little bit more prevalent in the U.S. than it is in Canada, um, but it's... The way that I've I heard it, and I've heard it used, is to kind of signal, you know, the increasing affluence and assimilation of Asian North Americans. I've heard it in kind of benign ways, meaning like it's kind of a compliment <laughs> to Asian Americans that they they have a, achieved this level of kind of incorporation that's following the trajectory of Jewish assimilation and incorporation. And so this, in some ways, follows you know the work of Matthew Frye Jacobson, and who you know teaches us that you know Jewish Americans kind of evolved. Um, from a kind of non- anglo-Saxon social identity in the 19th century and then gradually was incorporated into a kind of caucasian or white social position by the mid 20th century so that's sort of the benign um, i guess way in which that analogy has been used but of course you know the negative side of the, the analogy um, is that you know there actually has been a, a long history of conflating Asians and jews outside of north america and Um, I looked to the work of Jonathan Friedman, whose research looked at the way that, um, like Jews, um, Chinese merchants who were active through East and South Asia also faced similar kinds of, similar forms of resentment, economic resentment and discrimination. Um, And so you, with both of those figures of the Jew and the the Asian, and particularly the Chinese, um, you have um, expressions of a kind of Uh, industrial destructive industriousness a kind of greed and even evil that um, that actually has kind of grown that surrounds those two figures and they are also um, popular cultural representations of that kind of figure um, which include um, you know George de Maurier's creation of like the Svengali figure in the 19th century, as well as Sax romers invention of Fu Manchu. And so in both cases, you know, you have these two characters who are perverse, evil geniuses who, you know, aspire to world domination. So what's distinctive about the Jewish, the new Jews analogy is that um, unlike a a theory of, I guess, of um, racial inferiority (laughs) that we often associate with racism, there there's a kind of uh destructive uh superior like you know, domination that's associated with this. So so I started to think about um how uh an economic modality of modern antisemitism might also help to explain Asian racialization in a North American settler colonial context. And so for that, I I drew on Moish Pastone's um discussion of he has a sort of whole re-theorization of the Holocaust in which he looks at the way in which Jews who had historically been segregated in um, financial um, sectors of the economy, of the European economy, how they became, through the process of modern anti-Semitism and in, in a period of crisis, how they became to personify actual processes internal to finance capitalism in this this association with the abstract negative dimensions of, of capitalism. So I looked at that and thought that's really interesting because a lot of the tropes associated with Jews um, uh, it allowed me to sort of adapt that framework and think about how the Asian subject in North America Similarly, represented um, or personified abstract processes of value formation, but not because they were segregated in fi- the you know financial sectors or interest-bearing you know uh, uh, in, um, institutions, but rather by looking at the way they were associated with a certain form of destructive labor.
0: That's so interesting. And so I think that in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, you term this sort of abstraction of, uh, of Asian, Asian bodies and Asian, uh, Asian labor as representative of capitalism as a kind as, as part of what you call this romantic anti-capitalism. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what romantic anti-capitalism is, um, in the context of your book, um, and, and how it relates to Marxist theories of the fetish. Um, what's, what's really going on there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that you've really, um, honed in on like, I think the book's main argument, which is my argument is that uh, that romantic anti-capitalism is like a key ideology of settler colonialism. And um, so part of this means that um, like what romantic anti-capitalism is basically a misunderstanding or misperception of capitalism as a kind of opposition between the concrete natural world, like the, the touchable world, let's say, like the world of commodities and things that we can see and touch and sort of their sensory. So it sees that as kind of opposed to the abstract dimension of our world, which include, you know, invisible circuits of capital, like value. And so in if we read, you know, Marx's Capital, um, this is a misperception because the concrete and the abstract are actually in working constantly in dialectical relation. But in moments of crisis, we see how, you you know, we tend to privilege, or what romantic anti-capitalism does, is it privileges the the the, the um the sensory o- and organic world over the things that are sort of invisible. And I can kind of, I mean, the example that I always use to sort of describe this in more uh, popular culture ways is actually the film um, Into the Wild, <laughs> which is um this <laughs> great, which is a story. It's actually a true story of this guy, Chris McCandless, who. You know wanted he he really hated his upper middle class lifestyle, and he so he left or he ran away and he tried to you know he was on this quest to live in nature in the Alaskan wilderness and so basically the what I understand from this story is that his animosity towards capitalist modernity was like so intense that he basically you know he burned his cash and destroyed his material objects but it was kind of a misperception of, of like his, this is um, a misperception of capitalism because he sort of idealized the wilderness as sort of outside of capitalism. (laughs) And it's a kind of a binary view of nature as non-capitalist and capitalism as anti-natural, right? So, um, you know, in his case, which is kind of sad because he actually died, but, you know, him living alone in wilderness is, it's not anti-capitalist. It will do nothing to overthrow capitalism, but, We can see, though, in the example is how how romantic anti-capitalism has the capacity to shape um, our idealized notions of purity and impurity, um, what is authentic and inauthentic and who is natural or unnatural. Um, And I was just recently teaching um, a section on one of my classes on Vincent Chin, and, you know, he was killed because he was sort of a representation of these abstract, you know, economic threat associated with Japanese auto manufacturing so we can see again how, um, h- how how this abstract threat can kind of be personified by Asians and so that's sort of the the way in which I'm thinking about romantic anti-capitalism and on the o- other side of it to connect this to sort of settler colonialism um, you know there's also this romantic attachment to indigeneity right so we see in a lot of the um, uh, dominant represent or aesthetic, the aesthetic production of, of white settler uh, association or attachment to land. It's often, you know, through this kind of indigenizing function to associate, to naturalize whiteness in the landscape. So I'm interested in that as well.
0: Wow. So to zoom out a bit for our audience, the, the picture you've drawn for us so far, and I think it's really striking that you say it's, it's in a way a misunderstanding or a misperception Um, or conflation in a sense, is a white settler romantic anti-capitalism that on the one hand makes the white subject seem native and seem natural and concrete, and on the other hand associates the yellow or the Asian subject, more generally I should say, with the threatening foreign abstract economism of capitalism. So I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, and I guess this goes into chapter one a bit, how it comes to be that the Asian subject gets aligned with that threatening foreign abstract labor. I mean, you talk uh, really um, uh, persuasively about the way that certain conceptions of time and also of deviant sex uh, play into that. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah, it's... um, So a lot of that first... In trying to think about how Asians kind of get associated with this destructive realm of capitalism, um, I look at... I begin my exploration with uh, thinking about 19th century Chinese labor and how that became progressively associated with uh, a destructive kind of a a destructive efficiency. And if I could just back up one, um, just a step, I should also say that, you know, just going back to the, your point about, or the point about the new Jews analogy, one of the other points that I'm trying to make, which follows the work of Colleen Lai and others is to sort of, Um, argue that there's no break between a kind of yellow parallelism of the 19th and early 20th centuries and the new Jews, that they're kind of two sides of the same coin, or to to put it in other terms, that the model minority stereotype, which we You know, many of my students think is a positive (laughs) stereotype or and yellow peril, um, that they're actually very much they're part of a similar continuum that actually just sees um, economic efficiency and particularly labor efficiency as the basis for exclusion in a kind of yellow peril moment or assimilation in a kind of model minority moment. So that's one of the so that's sort of the continuum that I'm trying to chart over, you know, over. Uh, the period that begins in the 19th century and into and, and the contemporary moment. So, um, going to the point about time and thinking about labor time, uh, I look at the way in which there's a kind of excessive efficiency associated with Chinese railroad labor. And I look at um, how that excessive efficiency and the, in, that comes into conflict with white labor reinforces the sort of temporal and quali- quantitative dimensions of Chinese labor as a threat to the qualitative dimensions of white labor. Um, and so over time, that kind of temporal and quantitative dimension actually is reinforced and expanded through this notion of Chinese perversity, through um, the development of, of these homosocial spaces of Chinese um, bachelor communities, et cetera. So we see this sort of fusion of the Kent quantitative and temporal dimensions of Chinese labor as being destructive, and then later on becoming associated with um, the destructive, perverse kind of elements of uh, Chinese sexuality, and Chinese like masculinity or a perverse kind of form of um, Chinese um, sexuality. So that's one of the ways in which I sort of explore the features, I guess, the gendered and sexualized features of the destructive abstractions associated with Chinese labor time and its um, and its threat on a kind of qualitative, uh, qualitatively good, I guess, uh, notion of, <laughs> of of white labor, and I look at that through various um, cultural productions.
0: So it's really interesting because uh, speaking of those cultural productions, um, even as your entire book is theorizing. Um, the ways in which Asians are racialized. Um, I think almost all of the sources that you use are actually cultural productions by Asian North Americans, Asian Canadians, or Asian Americans themselves. And I was wondering if, um, in in particular, in the work of Maxine, I think I think in this chapter you'll get Maxine Hong Kingston, and I forget the name of the other um, uh, the other artist, um, Richard Fung. Um, if you could talk about the ways in which um, in in their works uh they're speaking back um to these notions of time um what what do you mean by history too in 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 this book uh
1: history too is uh, so thank you for that question that's a great question um so history too is is my way of looking or approaching Asian North American cultural production and the way that it responds or it's sort of in dialogue with, um, so in each chapter I have, um, it's kind of a dialogue between an Asian American cultural producer and an Asian Canadian cultural producer kind of responding to this um, thread that connects um, the US and Canadian settler colonial formations. So that's part of the structure of each chapter. Um, So History 2 is a concept that I developed or that I use from the work of Dipesh Chakrabarti that thinks about the way in which uh, we can think about time in different ways. And so a lot of the, in, in this chapter on the railroad, I think about the ways in which um, they respond, the, the, their representations of time um, uh, point to a different kind of futurity. So I'm looking, I'm thinking about both how the work's, disidentify with a sort of settler colonial um, representation of time or construction of time Um, because in the 19th century time becomes sort of consolidated with the, with the construction of the transcontinental railroad. So, so how does, how does it both expose and sort of, and, uh, highlight the exclusions represented in or that are embedded in those notions of time, capitalist temporality, and then how do they point to alternative futures that are, um, you know, allow us maybe that have a kind of utopian impulse. Uh, There was another question. Okay. I think that I'll just end that. (laughs) I'll end the question there. (laughs) Sure.
0: And I was wondering then, so this is how the alien is being, the idea of, 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 of the alien, um, is being produced, but can you talk a little bit about the construction of the indigenous? Because it seems on the one hand that you're pointing to, uh, the romanticization of, of indigenous native bodies, obviously at their expense, but also at the indigenization of white bodies, um, and, and, and they're embedding them in nature. Can you talk a little bit about how that, how that happens or how that has happened, um, in the American Canadian context?
1: Yes, um, so this is something that I look at, I think, in, in another chapter where I examine, uh, landscapes, uh, uh, landscapes in Canada and the U.S. that are, uh, Construct or their landscapes that are aesthetic landscapes, so like painterly, like artistic constructions of lands uh, of of the land um, that were produced in like the 1920s and 30s, which in both Canada and the US are is a time of, you know, heightened xenophobia. We have all these uh, immigration uh, laws that are being passed in the 1920s, and so I'm interested in the way in which. Um, people like the Group of Seven in Canada, um, Emily Carr, um, construct whiteness and or, or indigenize whiteness in a particular way. And so I look at the way in which um, uh, the landscape is in some ways personified um, as a kind of white figure that's controlling the sort of um, unruly social forces from below. Um, I also look at Ansel Adams and uh Borglum who created Mount Rushmore, again, to sort of look at the way in which whiteness and white dominion over the land is is really strongly um, uh, associated and to sort of constructed in relation to a particular view of landscape. So of course, it's about romanticizing indigeneity and, and indigenizing whiteness um, uh, in opposition to a kind of a, a racialized threat that in this case is um, represented by um, the Chinese, but other also other Asian ethnic groups. Uh, one of the examples I think that's kind of bears this out a more contemporary example is actually the film um cowboys and aliens which is not a film that many people have seen but um it's a film where uh actually you see the alignment of of cowboys and native people against this alien you know this alien threat which you could sort of see as a personification or is a representation of asians but again this idea that um white settler or kind of uh, white settler identity is heavily invested in this sort of alignment with indigeneity, even as it is, you know, committing, geno- has genocidal policies against that uh, in, indigenous community, in real indigenous communities. Uh, in a kind of imaginative realm, um, indigeneity is kind of a anchor for a kind of white settler claim to, um, to, the, to a kind of ownership of the land.
0: Right, I think I think there are actually a lot of striking similarities there between the the ways in which the idea that the threatening indigenous, you know, um, or or alien other, even even as it is, I mean, historically been the reverse, right? It's been indigenous on as dispossessed and so on and so forth. Um, it is is very parallel to the ways in which you know there's implicit representations of the the black other as threatening, you know, um, when in fact it was sort of. Um, uh, slave catchers who were chasing, um, there, and there's there's a lot that's been written about that the role of um, of, of race in these sort of uh, science fiction uh, fantasy narratives. So, so we've we've talked a lot about representations, um, but of, of course these representations of of labor, of indigeneity, of land, and so on, bear very concretely unracialized bodies. I mean, put bluntly, racial representations have consequences. Right, racialization. Has has consequences beyond just, of course, racialization itself. So, can we talk a bit about Japanese internment and, and how you treat Japanese internment in the book? I mean, as you as you said, um, very strikingly, there is a continuum between the notion of Asian peril and the notion of model minority. And I see Japanese internment as being this event um, between these two uh, tropes or representations. Um, that people often see as something of a conundrum and can't make sense of in our perhaps idealized notions of or narratives of American history. Um, How do you conceptualize of Japanese internment in the book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for the longest time, I struggled, especially with the representation of Japanese uh, Canadian internment that's depicted in Joy Kagawa's Obasan. Um, And so Japanese internment in Canada, the US, I should note, is quite was quite quite different in the sense that in Canada, Japanese Canadians weren't allowed to return to the West Coast until 1949. And so there was and there was a whole dispersal policy um, after the war. So many Japanese Canadians were actually sent further uh, east uh, into the prairies. And this is a policy that was actually discussed in the US, but actually never. Uh, came never uh, was never materialized, but but one of the one of the interesting parallels in Japanese Canadian and Japanese American internment was the kind of um, association with uh, nativeness um, and particularly the way in which Japanese Americans um, uh, were in the case of Poston were you know sent to a, a native a reservation and then in Canada. The discourse, actually in both Canada and the U.S., the discourse surrounding Japanese internees in when they were relocated was that they would be like that they would. There was a worry that they would become dependent on the government, like Native Americans, and they were actually many many ways treated like Native Americans. And uh, the War Relocation Authority in the U.S., you know, um, uh, was had the similar personnel, you know, from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So there was kind of this interesting conflation that was happening between Japanese and Indigenous and Native um, communities in both Canada and the U.S. And so I was trying to kind of make sense of that. Um, and so for the, for the chapter on Japanese, um, uh, you know, relocation, I looked to uh, Colleen Lai's work. And one of the ways that she explores The sort of heightened racism around Japanese, the sort of Japanese enemy aliens in the lead up to uh, relocation was how they were associated with a kind of monopoly capitalism. I mean, prior to to Japanese internment, um, you know, there were alien land laws, there were all these other sort of restrictions on, uh, you know, Asian property ownership and things like that. And so she asked a host of questions about. You know, the association of Japanese with kind of a form of like they're taking over the agricultural uh, industry and things like that. So I basically build on her on her analysis and argue that that Asians or Japanese become associated with um, a form of kind of having a control over relative surplus value. Um, And. Relative surplus value is the value that's produced above and beyond surplus value. And it's usually associated with a kind of technological innovation. Um, and it produces a temporary extra profit for the producer. So every, every capitalist is looking for a relative surplus value. And so this idea that Japanese um, become progressively associated with a kind of uh, mechanized innovation or um, is one of the ways in which I see we see how they are displacing kind of, again, are threatening, um, I guess, white labor, white a- agricultural um, hold on, on particular industries. So um, it fed the perception that Japanese labor kind of monopolized the creation of relative surplus value and therefore had to be, um, you know, taken out or like expelled from that area. And this is also, again, building on um, the work. That I established in the introduction around how um, Asians and through history have been associated with these different modalities of a destructive um, dimension of capitalism, and so in this chapter I look at this idea that they're associated with a kind of um, industrial, uh, like an industrial capitalism, that, mm-hmm. um, uh, and t- sorry, a dis- tech- particularly a technological innovation that um, uh, is. Monopolizing the creation of relative surplus value, but then I also later on acknowledging that there is this conflation that happens once um, Japanese internees are removed and are in various locations, um, either in British Columbia or in other parts of the interior of Canada. Um, I also look at Poston, which is uh, which was a place which had the Colorado. the river, sorry, I'm totally blanking on the, there's a kind of a conglomerate of different indigenous nations at Poston and how um, their conflation with native identities functions to sort of renovate uh, their, so that association with nativeness uh, removes the association with the destructive abstraction. And so they become kind of more associated with the pliable surplus labor force And I argue that that um, makes way for um, the model minority thesis, which, as we know, um, emerges very shortly after Japanese relocation. I mean, it's like within the span of, of 15 years that we have the model minority thesis and the argument that Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians are the most similar culturally, et cetera, to white Americans. So so we see that that kind of um, in some ways uh, destigmatizes um, Japanese labor or kind of constructs a new modality in relation to, to surplus labor.
0: Right. And, and again, here, I think that the um, comparison between Canada and America in a, in a way, internationalizing the phenomenon of internment, which um, at least obviously in the, in the American academic context, we tend to see as a solely American or chiefly American phenomenon um, really helps um, clarify some of those processes of of, of conflation, as you say. Um, so so bringing it to today, as you point out, um, you know, Asians are racialized now as either either I mean, depending on whom we're talking about, as either poor migrant labor or supposedly wealthy, flexible, competent model citizens. Um, can you talk a bit about that period after internment, that the role that neoliberalism has played? Um, in constructing such abstractions since the 1960s,
1: um, yeah. So, 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 kind of beginning where I just added <laughs> this idea that the kind of conflation or identification with native identities kind of neutralizes um, this association with a natural value, and then reconstitutes um, Japanese Americans as and Japanese Canadians as a kind of ideal surplus labor force, and leads leads kind of gives way to or at least creates a clears the space for the emergence of the model minority thesis. So, so that takes us to yeah to the 60s. And again, as I mentioned before, immigration policy in Canada, the US really emerges, I mean, as it relates to um, Asian migration and um, immigration policy related to Asian groups, you know, really does kind of uh, unfold in lots of steps. So, the liberalization, or as I put it, kind of neoliberalization of immigration law in 1965 in this country is followed, you know, is very parallel to the 1967 immigration law in Canada. And one of my, so the, my main argument in that chapter is kind of based on, I think, my um, but just watching my where I grew up in Vancouver Island, but particularly looking at Vancouver as a place where there was all this heightened racism around uh, um, foreign investment, Chinese foreign investment in, in places like Vancouver, and that there was this perception that they were buying up all this land or buying all these houses and turning them into monster houses. And so I was interested in the rhetoric around foreign investment and how it related to the border and Immigration policy. So, so for me, what I think that neoliberal immigration policy achieved was kind of like a fulfillment of uh, a settler a settler um, uh, logic, in the sense that it um, kind of, in some ways, further entrenches this notion of an abstraction—a kind of uh, uh, the foreign capital associated with Asian citizens—is again, it's entrenching a, an alignment with of Asians with the. Kind of an abstract kind of financial dimension of of alien capital, um, and so you know the sort of resentment of wealthy Chinese investor migrants, which we certainly see um, in you know not just in Vancouver, but probably along in lots of different places um, in, in throughout North America, and actually through the, throughout the Americas, I would say. So th- that becomes kind of an expression of this, um, and meanwhile, these are expressions that were really encouraged by uh, foreign policy. So in Canada, for instance, we there was a, a, a multiculturalism means business kind of, um, you know, policy, explicit policy. So this is about um, uh, attracting foreign investment from, from Asia. And this is the sort of the repercussion of that. Meanwhile, the sort of denigration of poor or low skilled migrants kind of has remained. I mean, in the 19th century, the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, the passage of the Canadian Chinese Head Tax and later Chinese Immigration Act in 1923, I mean, all of those policies were meant to deter poor, low-skilled migrants. And so that has remained consistent because 1967, and 1965 um, immigration policies um, explicitly in Canada and have become more of a reflection of canadian immigration policy they have they they favor a point system like they favor a high highly skilled um you know as ling chi Wang puts it techno coolies <laughs> and um and so so that that there still is the same similar perception of the perception of of low-skilled asian laborers as being some kind of destructive threat uh Through their labor, um, the labor, the threat to white labor that they represent, or the threat to white citizenship that they represent—I mean, that's sort of remained consistent. So that remains untouched, but plus it's sort of aggravated by this, by this notion that um, Asian foreign capital is also this destructive, uh, is also this kind of destructive threat associated with wealthy um, Asian investors.
0: So one thing I was struck by, and just to go back to um, the beginning a bit, um, is that um, you, you, you've, you've mapped out um, this distinct process of Asian racialization. And um, um, on, 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 the, on the one hand, um, it has to do with um, the, the sort of perceived threat of specific, um, you know, let's say Japanese or, or Chinese labor. Um, and yet, there's also this notion of, of Asian racialization, right? That um, something about um, the visual culture, um, for example, I as a Korean might be abstracted in the same way um, as a, a Japanese um, subject in, in the street, right? Um, just to put it very, very colloquially. Um, and I was wondering, I mean, how that process happens? How it comes to be? Is this is this yet another level of conflation? Um, in, in addition to the abstraction of um, of capital?
1: Well, uh, that's a great question. And I think that the way that I try to respond to it is through, again, uh, continues with thinking about the role of the border and thinking about how uh, immigration policy functions as a form of kind of Of global Jim Crow or a global site of like uh, segregation on a world scale. And so thinking about the development of, or the history of capitalism in North America, you know, um, one of the arguments I make is that the racialization of Asians is also more abstract, uh, meaning in a slightly different way than I meant, I mean, in other er parts of the argument, but it's more abstract in the sense that it's less, uh fixed, it's less uh, mutable or or sorry I should say immutable. So the when Asian migration comes into North America, it's at a moment in the history of capitalism that requires a much more flexible labor force. And so as a result, you know there's a kind of there's this idea that Asians are kind of less racial <laughs> than African Americans or indigenous populations whose racial essence is kind of expressed as the relative, Power of their blood to contaminate, in the sense of, in the in the case of, of African Americans, or to sort of um, erase a population, and and if we think about indigenous populations, and so, um, so it's interesting that, um, in many ways, uh, Asians don't have because of the border, um, as a racial signifier. The idea that there's some kind of indelible, transfer like transferable attributes that are associated with Asianness, you know, that th- that that whole modality of, of racialization that we might associate with blackness is really less necessary as a strategy of containment because, um, unlike inma- emancipated slaves, you know, Asians could and were excluded <laughs> from the from the nation state through Im- immigration policy, so it wasn't as much of a requirement to sort of fix these kinds of racial notions to the body because their entire body could be excluded.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah, I think this um, framework of the global Jim Crow really helps um, zoom us out a little bit and and not be so limited to the national framework and thinking about how these processes of racialization happen. Um, And I guess I wonder, um, I, I, I thought a lot about in this book, um, about complicity, right? We're we're talking a lot about the ways in which subjects are racialized. Um, Mm -hmm. But then it also struck me that, you know, different racialized subjects can be interested in very different kinds of political projects, right? Um, And I thought that this was particularly clear um, in the case of Israel, right? That on the one hand, there is the racialization of Jews, and, 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 of course, that serves as a kind of analogical function with regard to Asian and racialization in your book, right? That they've, there's, there's, they've undergone one process of racialization. And yet, on the other hand, and of course, this is like very prevalent in Palestine studies um, and Middle East studies more generally, it's, it's very clear that there are um, reasons to consider Israel itself as uh, a settler colony, um, so I was wondering how you understand Israel as a typical settler colony or as a meaningfully exceptional one.
1: Yes, um, that's a that's a great question, and it's not a question that I take up with any level of uh, development, you know, in in my book. But certainly, um, I think a lot of people, the the thinking and the development of, of settler colonial studies, is, is really considered the question of Israel, and for me. Um, the work of Brenna Bandar uh, her her book her recent book is called the colonial lives of property and the subtitle is law land and racial regimes of ownership and which is a is a fantastic uh examination kind of comparative examination of settler colonies and like s- logic of property um and ownership in in Israel Austra- South Australia British and British Columbia and also in relation to Uh, British uh, property laws um, that were enacted in Ireland. So so one of the things that I learned from her book is that on one hand, uh, Israel is a a typical settler colony in the way that it, um, through Zionism, it imports particular ideologies of improvement and use from British colonial law. And so there's a real emphasis in Zionism on on particular, very specific modes of, of cultivation in order to assert a property right in land, and and this is really consistent with um, property law that I'm familiar with, and particularly in North America, where you know there's this idea that you know if you um, improve the land, then it's it's sort of the basis of property, your your uh, an ownership, right? So indigenous people occupy the land, whereas settlers uh, own it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Uh, and so this idea, this ideology of, of improvement and use is really central and, in, and really consistent across um, these different settler colonies. Um, so um, the other thing that's really interesting that she looks at is that when thinking about anti-Semitism, is that particularly in, in uh, Europe, um, anti-Semitism um, was really a lot of the uh, the negative kind of racist. Um, uh, uh, well, the, the the racism was directed at the actual at the at the perceived nomadism and the and against migratory peoples, and so this mm-hmm. kind of creates an interesting connection between anti-Semitism or between Jewish and native peoples who are perceived as not belonging fi- in, to a fixed location, <laughs> and so the way that it kind of evolved in. Um, in Europe was that Jews were perceived because as migratory peoples that didn't weren't attached to a specific, you know, um, allotment of land that they could avoid tax, you know, and that, um, and so in many ways, what Zionism does or political Zionism does is it, it, it resolves that tension by creating, uh, an attachment to land through cultivation. Um, and so, it's really, race, it's really gendered. So land improvement is kind of perceived as a moment of redemption for Jewish peoples, and it restores the sort of masculinity of the settler against a kind of feminization that's perceived or, or is associated with the sort of Jewish diasporic figure. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And, but, the, but I think that it's also important to kind of um, note the distinction um, that unlike other settler colonies, where in which there's absolutely a colonial profit motive um, that existed throughout North America, as well as um, Australia, especially when you see the development of these corporations that um, establish these property um, laws uh, or enact kind of property uh, in, in, in est- and through cultivation and and uh, um, through um, surveys and a whole bunch of like forms of mapping, um, what's distinct in, at least in Bandar's um, book, she talks about how, you know, the theological dimension of Zionism is definitely um, distinct and there isn't really that kind of same profit prophet motivation of a settler colonialism that exists in Israel. So, um, sort of the, So that's kind of, those are some of the points that I drew from her examination of Israel.
0: That's really interesting. And, and it's certainly, I mean, to fill in the other half of it, I, I think that certainly aligns with at least my understanding of the ways in which um, the Arab-Palestinian was racialized in that context, right? The, the migratory Bedouin uh, era. Um, so I was wondering how, I mean, Alien Capital, um, I think the, the audience should know with no exaggeration, um, is an astonishing you know, new theorization of settler colonialism. I was wondering how it's been received um, in the few years since it's come out. I think that it's been
1: well received. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, it's, um, I, I feel like I'm in between uh, two, I mean, I'm sort of both, or how do I say this? I'm, I I feel like I'm kind of an Asian Americanist uh, uh, thinking about this question of settler colonialism, which um, is distinct from um, some of the theorizations of, I guess, Asian settler colonialism in, um, in Hawaii and other places. And particularly because I'm trying to sort of move out of a binary framework of settler colonialism. And so in that, in that, in that desire to do that, I have been really profoundly impacted and, you know, I feel like I'm in conversation with a lot of people working in black studies, thinking about um, other ways to sort of think about um, uh, blackness in relation to white settler colonialism, conquest and things like that. So um, I'm in between, I feel like, you know, different discourses surrounding Asian American studies, um, native and indigenous studies, as well as black studies. So um, in all of those, the the, the react, I guess the response has been, I think um, it's, it's been positive. Uh, I think there's still tensions just in my observation of, of the, of how these um, discourses are unfolding that there's, you know, there have been tensions around thinking about uh, anti-Blackness and col- or slavery and colonialism and how we can understand their intersection. Um, and so I've actually been really, um, you know, I've thrown myself into reading other works like Manu Kar- Karuka's, um, you know, he has a kind of Marxist-Leninist book on railroad imperialism and shareholder whiteness um, in his book, Empire's Tracks. I mean, I mentioned Brenda Bandar's book, *The Colonial Lives of Property*, and then Robert Nichols' uh, recent book, *Theft Is Property*. It also is a really excellent way of kind of thinking through the relationality of slavery and um, and colonialism, and also thinking about uh, the role of just property. Um, through, I mean, I think feel like that's a, a through line that, that that a lot of the discussions, which is something that kind of is in the periphery of my book i mean thinking about cheryl harris's notion of whiteness as property but that that comes to the fore and thinking about both the expression of like the way in which property is enacted um, in land but also notions thinking about notions of self-possession right and and the body as something that is owned or you know what is what is the status of of self-possession and liberal conceptions of self-possession so those are all been um really interesting ways that i have. thought about connections with with my book.
0: That's really striking, actually. That reminds me of um, one of my favorite parts of the book, um, um, but perhaps also um, one of the more controversial ones, is um, when you talk about um, the position of African slaves um, and African Americans um, within the settler-colonial triangulation that you set up, and you say that actually we should understand um, slaves as migrants um, and, and, and not as this sort of indigenous natives in this, in this triangulation. And of course, you know, you say that in no way implies an equivalence, you know, between the heterogeneous experiences of African slaves and Asian migrants and their descendants. Um, But could you talk a little bit more about that, about why it actually helps us understand anti-blackness more to perceive or uh, uh, to conceive of, 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 of um, the black body as part of um, that migrant point in the triangle?
1: Right. Um, Well, I try to, um, I don't know if I emphasize migration (laughs) specifically, but I do emphasize the idea of being alien. So the whole point of the the sort of orientation of the whole book is to sort of think about indigenous land. So if everything is oriented around that, then um, you have white settlers, but I argue that you have racialized aliens. So people who are not indigenous, but they're not not, non-white, non-indigenous people. So so I think about um, African slaves in the U.S. as being kind of the original or sort of first aliens to the United States, and which is very distinct from, obviously, the later um, arrival of, of Asian aliens. But to sort of think about it, the triangulation in, the, in those terms, so like white settler, indigenous and, and, and racialized alien.
0: And um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your future projects?
1: Uh, Yes, um, I'm thinking about, uh, at the moment, a, a few different things, and I'm not sure if they all go together really clearly yet. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to my upcoming sabbatical. Um, <laughs> but um, I am interested in thinking through um, exploring the idea of nuclear colonialism and I, I, this, the origins of this new sort of set of questions that I have emerges just from um, doing a little bit of research on the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, and then actually my, my family, my, my grandmother and my uncle and my, my whole family on my mother's side is, is from Hiroshima and lost people through the atomic bombing of, of Hiroshima. So I was interested in, you know, exploring some of that, um, that history. And it turns out that the, um, that the uranium that was sourced and used in the atomic bombing was sourced from the Northwest Territories in Canada, uh, and also the, uh, the Belgian Congo in in Africa. So I was kind of interested in this intimacy of, you know, three continents, I guess, uh, between like, (laughs) uh, the Belgian Congo, Northwest Territories, and how and then that uh, the uranium that went into the bomb was um, uh, tested in New Mexico and then, you know, detonated over Hiroshima. So sort of thinking about uh, the logistics of, of that, uh, of the transport of uranium. So mm-hmm. that's one, one of the questions that I have. And then the other is to sort of think about um, settler colonialism in African nations, and in particular, just thinking about the way in which at least in Patrick Wolf's theorization or the sort of dominant conceptualizations of, of settler colonialism, often exclude African nations, African settler colonies. So I've think, been thinking about um, just uh, looking at um, extractive economies, settler col- colonies in, in Africa to examine how the connections and maybe disconnections in um, the phenomenon of wastelanding in, um, in places like uh, that you know, uh, produce or produce minerals for uh, the global north. Um, But similar, similar um, processes that exist in the Northwest Territories in Canada, as well as in places like um, New Mexico and other parts uh, where there you have the same kinds of extraction, sort of places that are there's extraction and also dumping that happens in the same place.
0: Wow, Iko, I think it is with no exaggeration. I can say that we're very excited um, for those upcoming book projects. Um, And um, thank you so much for coming on here today. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs)